Our Father, as we come to your word today, we come to a text that is very tempting to skip over, but Lord, we approach your word with full confidence in the fact that your work is accomplished through the proclamation of your word. So we pray, Lord, that you would give us understanding today of this text in order that we may glorify you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So if you are already at the text, you'll look at Genesis chapter 5 and you will see that it is a genealogy, which is everybody's favorite thing to study, right? Everybody loves genealogies. Am I right? No, I'm not. People hate genealogies, typically. When they come across them, the temptation is to skip it. Let me warn you against that, first of all, because God's word is God's word. But secondly, if you don't read the genealogies of chapters 4 and 5, you will get to chapter 6, and you will have no idea who the sons of God are. You will have no idea. You won't know, based on context, if you skip over who these people are and what the significance of chapter 5 is. Now, I can't entirely blame people for hating genealogies in the Bible or getting frustrated when they come to a genealogy and maybe even maybe being tempted or maybe just go ahead and do it, skip over it, because genealogies might seem very irrelevant. But first of all, we have to understand it's part of the context. And so we want to understand the context, but... Never mind the fact that, you know, sometimes you'll come to a genealogy and it's like, how do you pronounce this without a stuffy nose or something? You know, I understand. It's it's complicated. It's complicated. On the surface, it's very complicated. Genealogies require some very serious attention. Very serious attention. That much I will not deny. What I will deny is that a genealogy is irrelevant in any way, shape, or form, because the Word of God is always, always relevant. The Word of God is always relevant. Every book, every chapter, every paragraph, every verse, every word, it is all breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness, according to 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. And that includes genealogies. That includes genealogies. And if we believe what God's word says about itself, we have to understand that if we skip over a genealogy because it appears to be inadequate in terms of its substance, it just doesn't have, appear to have a lot of meat. So it appears to be inadequate. The real inadequacy is within ourselves and our own inability to discern the instructional value of a difficult portion of the text. So with all that said, we must come to a genealogy. We come to a text humbly and yet with the expectation that the Holy Spirit will illuminate the text for us and give us understanding. And friends, if I didn't have a deep, deep love for the Word of God, for studying it, for, for meditating on it, to, and for, for teaching it, I would be very tempted to skip right over Genesis chapter 5 and just go to Genesis chapter 6. However, I love the Word of God. And I want you to love God's Word too. And I see the value of a genealogy 
And I want you to see the value of a genealogy as well. I believe that even a genealogy has more to teach us than an entire collection of worldly self-help books. Genesis chapter 4 was like a good movie plot, wasn't it? Just to back us up a little bit and set the context. It was filled with evil, murder, corruption, betrayal, rebellion. It looked like a completely hopeless situation throughout the chapter as we see that these people who are rebelling against God are increasing in accordance with their prosperity. They're advancing. They're making all kinds of social and technological advancements. They are thriving as a community, but they are completely godless. But we got just the slightest glimpse of hope at the end of chapter 4. And if you know anything about God, you know that a slight glimpse of hope from God is way more than enough. It's better to have even the slightest glimpse of hope from God than it is to have all the hope in the world from man. So having shown us in chapter 4 that Cain, after murdering Abel and after God deals with him about his sin, he goes off and he establishes this city called Enoch, which turns into a thriving, advancing, prospering culture. Chapter 4 ended with the introduction of Seth. Adam and Eve's son, who essentially took Abel's place after Abel was murdered. Well, Seth started a new line of people too. Just like Cain went off and started this civilization, Seth did too. We read this in chapter 4, verse 26, the last verse of that chapter. This is the glimpse of hope. To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. There's a really important principle that we're going to see today. And that is that God is always faithful to set aside a people for himself. In fact, this tells us, what this tells us is that the godless culture might be thriving, yes. But as it's thriving throughout human history, God has been faithful to set apart a people for himself. In the Old Testament, they're frequently referred to as the remnant, the faithful remnant, because they were only a small percentage of the entire population of Israelites who were becoming more and more worldly, more and more like the the cultures around them. In the New Testament, they're no longer called the remnant or the faithful remnant, although the concept is the same. They're called the church. They're called the church. And it's not that the church has replaced Israel. To the contrary, the church in the New Testament under the New Covenant has been grafted into the tree of Israel according to Romans chapter 11. But I'm kind of digressing here and I don't want to do that. That's a a subject for another day. It's It's a worthy subject for another day. The point is that God has always been faithful to raise up and set aside for himself a people. And there is nothing that has ever, in all of human history, there is nothing that has ever been able to prevent him from doing so so, or to thwart or stall his purposes. We'll see in our text today that God has always been faithful to do this and that there has never, in the course of all of human history, there has never been a generation in which God was not doing this, not setting aside 
raising up a people for himself. So, having seen the wickedness that was flourishing amongst humanity through Cain's line, and having seen that Seth's line started to call upon the name of the Lord, we're now going to be introduced to Seth's descendants. And it's really interesting to see how chapter, uh, chapter 5 begins. Chapter 5, verses 1 and 2 say this. It says, This is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them. And he blessed them and named them man when they were created. Now let's just stop there for a second. Does this ring a bell? Does this sound familiar or similar to something else that we've already seen in the book of Genesis? What does it remind you of? What does it bring you back to? It should bring you back to Genesis chapter 1 where we saw this, where we saw that God made everything perfect in creation and where he made man. And when he, or, uh, when he made man, he ordained that man would bear the image of God. And this is bringing us back to that. But it reveals for us that while the image of God was effaced by sin's entrance into humanity, God's image was not erased. It was effaced, but not erased from humanity. God's image in man was damaged, but it was not destroyed. It was impaired, but it was not annihilated. Humanity still bore the image of God, even after the fall. And by the way, this is what makes murder a heinous crime, according to Genesis chapter 9, verse 6, because it tells us that uh, basically murder, if you want to boil it all down, it's essentially an assault on the image of God. And that is what makes murder such a heinous crime. Just as God's image wasn't destroyed in the fall, it was damaged but not destroyed, the blessings of God that we call procreation also remained intact after the fall. And it's important for us to realize that because Genesis chapter 5 shows us that the earth's human population multiplied many, many, many times over during this time that we're going to cover in Genesis chapter 5. Now, if we keep in mind that genealogies sometimes skip over generations, we understand that there is room for enormous growth of population in this chapter. That fact should also remind us that the purpose of a genealogy is not to determine the age of the earth. That is not the primary purpose of a genealogy. It's not a secondary purpose of a genealogy. Uh, the, The age of the earth is not a theme in Genesis. It's not a theme anywhere, not even a secondary theme. So with that said, it's a battle that probably shouldn't be fought with a genealogy in hand. It's a battle that doesn't need to be fought. It's not a hill that's worth dying on. But God's faithfulness to his purposes, that's, worth, that's a hill worth dying on. His grace as being demonstrated in fulfilling his purposes and his plans, that's a hill that's worth dying on. That's a battle that's worth fighting And that's what Genesis chapter 5 is all about. It's a contrast from the previous chapter, which gave us the line, the the descendants of Cain. These are many of the people who had begun to call on the name of the Lord that we're going to see in this chapter. And there are going to be a total of 10. Uh, And that's that's significant, but we'll save the the details for that because it's all academic. But let's continue with verses 3 to 5. When Adam had lived 130 years... He fathered a son in his own likeness, after his image, and named him Seth. 
The days of Adam after he fathered Seth were 800 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days that Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. So Seth was born when Adam was 130 years. That gives us a hint about something. It tells us that, uh, that Cain and Abel uh, weren't 200 years. They, they probably weren't more than 129 years when, uh, yeah, well, and then you take their age into account, go down to 110 years. I don't know. They, they may have been up to 110 years old when they had their incident. What the author tells us here is that Seth bore the image of Adam. He bore the image of his father who bore the fractured, damaged, Effaced but not erased image of God. That is, the sin nature of his father was passed along to him. What does that mean? It means that Adam's descendants would have a moral compass. They would have an inherent sense, uh, an instinctive sense of what is morally right and morally wrong. They would have the law of God written on their hearts, according to Romans chapter 2. But... They would have a propensity towards sin that would be irresistible because it is in their nature to love sin. It is in fallen man's human nature to love sin and to hate righteousness. It means that everything that they do is both influenced and corrupted by this nature, by sin. And this is why Romans chapter 3 says of all of humanity, it says none is righteous, no, not one. How many are righteous? None. No one understands. No one seeks for God. How many understand and seek for God? Nobody. Because of sin. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. This is the image of Adam. This is the image of Adam. The only person who has ever been born who did not have the image of Adam is the only person who's ever been born of a father who himself didn't bear the image of Adam. And that is Jesus Christ our Lord who was conceived in the womb of a virgin by the Holy Spirit who was fully God and fully man. The last and better Adam The perfect embodiment of the fullness of God. The untainted, unblemished image of God. One of the things that you do when you study a genealogy is you look for themes. You look for repetition, words or sentences that you see over and over again through the text. And of the ten descendants that are named for us specifically in this chapter, ten times we see the author tell us that so-and-so, in this case Adam, but we're going to see it throughout the chapter, that so-and-so fathered uh, many sons and daughters. Nine of their descriptions end with the words, and he died. The only exception is a Sethite named Enoch, not to be confused with the Cainite named Enoch. The only exception is Enoch, and we're going to get to him before too long. Given the optimism that the world started with back in Genesis chapters 1 and 2, the outlook has now been dimmed drastically because we see the phrase, and he died. 
over and over and over again through this chapter. The original Hebrew, if you were to translate that phrase literally, would simply say, dead or died. So we could read that last line here to say, thus all the days that Adam lived were 930 years dead. Why is there death? Because there's sin, and the wage of sin is death. As one commentator notes of this chapter, the prevalence of death and our awareness of Death's presence among us is, quote, like the unfolding of a murder mystery in which we ourselves turn out to be the victim, end quote. The day is coming when we, too, will face the certainty of death, and it is the epitome of foolishness to live with this attitude that says, it's not going to happen to me. And so it's been since the very first Man, even the man who started it all, who was created directly by God, Adam. We saw that there is mercy in death, however, back in Genesis chapter 3, because it marks an end to pain and suffering. It marks an end to the earthly toil, the sweat, the tears, the bloodshed that we endure because of sin. No matter how long you live, however, however, Death brings with it the harsh and often painful realization that life is very, very short. It comes and it goes so fast. One day you're young. One day you're, you just feel invincible, like you can go out and conquer the world. And the next, you're wondering where those days have gone. All you want to do is sleep and eat and go to the bathroom. One commentator did the math on how many descendants Adam may have seen in his 930 years. And he concluded this. This is interesting. He says, quote, If Adam, during his lifetime, saw only half of the children he could have fathered grow up, and if only half of those got married, and if only half of those who got married had children, then even at these conservative rates, Adam would have seen more than a million of his own descendants. A million, in 930 years, a million possible descendants, and that's by conservative estimates. In 930 years, yeah, that's a long time. You can have a lot of kids in 930 years. Adam, the first man, would have to see, would have to taste, would have to experience the consequence of sin, the reality of death. He lived for 930 years. He fathered many sons and daughters who bore his image, among whom was Seth. Dead. Dead. And he dies. Let's think about it. He dies, and and much to his surprise, he dies before he's able to see this promised offspring that was promised back in Genesis chapter 3. He had to think that he was going to see this offspring. He had to think that he was going to to see with his, his own eyes this promised Messiah at any time, any day, any generation now. But he would not live to see the fulfillment of that promise. He had to live by faith, just trusting in God's promises, trusting in God's faithfulness to do what he has said that he's going to do. He never got to see this promised Messiah with his own eyes. We continue, verses 6 to 17. 
When Seth had lived 105 years, he fathered Enosh. Seth lived after he fathered Enosh 807 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Seth were 912 years, and he died. When Enosh had lived 90 years, he fathered Canaan. Enosh lived after he fathered Canaan 815 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Enosh were 905 years, and he died. When Canaan had lived 70 years, he fathered Mahalalel. Canaan lived after he fathered Mahalalel 840 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Canaan were 910 years, and he died. When Mahalalel had lived 65 years, he fathered Jared. Mahalalel lived after he fathered Jared 830 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Mahalalel were 895 years, and he died. So what you see here is that there are a couple phrases that are just being repeated over and over and over. He fathered many sons and daughters, dead. One after another, after another, after another. Adam lived 930 years, dead. Seth lived 912 years, dead. Enosh lived 905 years, dead. Canaan, dead. Mahalalel, dead. What a depressing cycle. What a depressing thing to see that this cycle goes on and on and on, dead, 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 and it continues to this day. I get it. It's bleak. It's harsh. It's kind of depressing. Death is a terrible, terrible reality. These people who called upon the name of the Lord were only on earth for a limited time. They're right standing before God. They called on the name of the Lord. They believed in their hearts that, that He was who he said he was and that he would do what he said he would do. This right standing that they had through faith in God didn't render their physical bodies immune from the death and decay that had entered into the created order through sin. Like the descendants of Cain, they can say with the soap opera, like sand in the hourglass, so are the days of our lives. Here's the reality, friends. Life is very short. It doesn't matter how long you live. Life is short. Eternity is very long. Eternity is very long. As Solomon neared the end of his days, he pondered the reality of death. He had lived foolishly, even though he was the wisest man on earth, kind of ironic. But at the end, he concluded that everything, everything that he had lived for was absolutely meaningless, fleeting, vanity, here one day and gone the next, like a vapor in the wind. As you go through the book of Ecclesiastes, you see that this is the theme in the book of Ecclesiastes. In fact, he introduces it almost immediately, starting in chapter 1, verse 2, where he writes, meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher, utterly meaningless, everything is meaningless. And this is what we see through the whole book of Ecclesiastes as Solomon reflects on every aspect of life. Countless philosophers and poets, songwriters, have reached the same depressing realization throughout the generations of humanity. We will all face death. And it's something that we have to face alone. Life is like fighting a battle that every single one of us is eventually going to lose. It, all, it makes all the, the things in life that we see, all the things that we love, Meaningless. 
meaningless. Is it all really meaningless, though? Yes, but no. Yes, for those who, like Cain and his descendants, lived for the things of this world. They lived for money. They lived for power. They lived for control. But while it may seem that that's exactly how Solomon lived most of his life, he seems to have come around at the very end. Here are the final words that he wrote, which are contained in Scripture. The end of Ecclesiastes, the last two verses, he says this. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Everything in life that you might live for, that we might live for, that Solomon may have lived for, is ultimately meaningless, except fearing God and obeying his commandments. So yes, if you live for the things of this world, yes, it is all completely meaningless. But there is one thing in life that matters, one thing that is not meaningless, and that is fearing and obeying God. In comparison to this, nothing else in life matters. Nothing, nothing else in life matters. If you don't have yourself right with God, if you are not living first and foremost for the glory of God, you're living for things that are ultimately meaningless. So, don't waste your life. Don't waste your life on living for things that are meaningless. Life is short. Eternity is really long. Why would you live for the things of this world when they, like you, will come and go? Why would you trade a few momentary pleasures in this life for an eternal, conscious life of torment where you would beg for eternity for even a drop of grace to be granted and there is none to be given? Unlike the descendants of Cain, whose time on earth was the closest that they would ever come to the joys of heaven, the descendants of Seth called upon the name of the Lord. They believed. They had faith in God. They called on his name. They believed in God's promise of redemption through the seed of the woman. They feared God, and they lived accordingly. They loved God. They proclaimed the goodness and the grace of God. They had great faith in God. They lived their lives for the glory of God. And as a result, even though they would die, just like the descendants of Cain, even though they would die, this life wouldn't be the closest that they would ever come to the joys of heaven. No, this life would be the closest that they would ever come to experiencing the terrors of hell. So on the one hand, you have people who trade true treasure for meaningless, worthless treasure. And on the other hand, you have people who trade what's meaningless for true treasure. So which are you? What have you chosen? Because make no mistake about it, friends, those are the only two options. 
You have chosen one or the other. But God is gracious for those who are still living and have chosen wrongly. You're still alive today. As long as you've got a heartbeat, there's more than a glimpse of hope if you will just turn to God. The road which leads to hell, friends, is wide, it is easy, and it's populated. And it's not marked as the road that leads to hell. It's marked as the road that leads to heaven. But don't be mistaken, friends, because it leads straight to God's eternal wrath. The narrow path. The narrow path is a steep grade with hazards, hardships, trials, tribulations, difficulties all along the way, but it leads to glory. And your journey to glory is enabled and it is empowered, it's strengthened by the grace of God along the way. Death is certain unless God intervenes before death comes. There will be a generation of God's people for whom this is the exception. And that is the generation of God's people who are living when Christ returns. And make no mistake about it, He is returning. He is returning. And those who are living for God with faith in Christ when He does return will be caught up and changed in the twinkling of an eye without death being the means by which they enter into the eternal presence of God's glory. The first person to enter into God's presence by these means was the next descendant in the line of Seth. The last person that we, that we looked at here uh, that we saw was Mahalalel, who was the father of Jared. So continuing in verse 18, we'll look at verses 18 to 24. We read this. When Jared had lived 162 years, he fathered Enoch. Jared lived after he fathered Enoch 800 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Jared were 962 years, and he died. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. So what we see here, this is really interesting. What we see here is that there's more time or, or, or space, more, more writing dedicated to the life of Enoch than there is for anybody else in Seth's line. And if you snooze your way through this chapter or if you were to skip this chapter, you might miss the fact that Enoch's story is vastly, vastly different from that of both his ancestors, the people who came before him, and his descendants, the, the people who came after him. He doesn't die. That's the difference. It breaks the cycle. Enoch's life breaks the cycle of death. Instead, we read that Enoch walked with God, and suddenly, one day, he wasn't. He didn't exist anymore on earth. God took Enoch to glory. And just like that, Enoch lives a, a very, very brief 365 years on earth, brief in, in comparison, right? Brief in comparison to what everyone else uh, in this chapter is, is living to, but to us, it's like, wow, 365 years, that's a long time. But then God takes Enoch home to glory. 
How did this happen? It doesn't tell us. So maybe he was taken up to heaven the same way that Elijah was. Elijah's the only other person who was raptured in this way. Maybe he was beamed up like a character in Star Trek. You know, we don't know. But apparently there were people that knew where Enoch went. It's not like he just disappeared and nobody had any idea where he went. Because people knew where he went and who took him. God took him. God took him. Why did God take him, you might ask? Well, because God is God. Because God is God. God wanted to take him, so he took him. Enoch walked with God, and to walk with God means to have an intimate fellowship with him. So in his eternal wisdom and in accordance with his own sovereign will, God didn't let death touch Enoch. And it's interesting to read this little bit about him, isn't it? I mean, it says that when he turned 65, he fathered a son named Methuselah. We don't know what kind of person Enoch was before Methuselah. We don't know anything about him up to that point, but becoming a father apparently really, really changed his life. The author tells us that Enoch only started walking with God after he became a father, So becoming a father apparently showed Enoch that he better walk with God. That he better straighten out his act, whatever he was doing, that he needed to rely on God, to trust in God. I guess maybe being a dad can do that for a man who is wise and realizes his own limitations in fatherhood. Hebrews chapter 11 verse 5 tells us that by faith Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death. And he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. How was he commended as having pleased God? Again, we don't know exactly, but God made sure that it was known, that it was made known to everyone else that to become more like Enoch was a step in the right direction. And no, that's not to say that, uh, that Enoch was perfect or that people should be exactly like him. Yes, Enoch was a sinner, but he had great faith. He had great faith. He pleased God. He made it known. How did he please God? The next verse, verse 6, tells us, And without faith... It is impossible to please him, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Enoch would be more than just another person who calls on the name of the Lord and walks with God. He would also be the first prophet. Jude verse 14 tells us that Enoch had prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. There's the first prophecy in the entire Bible. And what's he talking about? What's he prophesying of? He's talking about the day that the Lord comes in judgment to establish his kingdom on earth. 
Enoch was talking about the second coming before there was even a first coming. The book of Job was the first book of the Bible to be written, and some might speculate that he knew about what had happened to Enoch, and he believed uh, that this day of judgment was coming, and he had heard what Enoch had prophesied about. Job said, For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another." Again, this is looking forward to the second coming of Christ. Is it possible that he had learned about what Enoch had prophesied? Yeah, it's, it's possible, if, if not even likely. It's also possible that God himself revealed that to Job. But Job knew that the day of judgment was coming, a day when God himself would stand on the face of the earth, and he, Job knows that he's going to be dead but he's going to be risen. Somehow, he's going to see with his own eyes the Lord standing upon the earth. The point is that whether you're talking about Enoch or talking about Job, we learn from both of them that people were looking forward to the culmination of God's redemption of creation from very, very early on. Very early on, they knew that God was going to judge sin, that he was going to judge sinners. Now, if you're charting out the names of this genealogy, it's kind of interesting to see that Enoch lands in the seventh spot. Seven is God's uh, is symbolic of God's perfection, right? But also, who's the seventh spot over on Cain's side? Lamech. Lamech is number seven from Adam over on Cain's side. He's the guy who killed a boy, and then he wrote, wrote a song about it and sang it for his two wives. So seven generations removed from Adam. You have two people who could not be more different from each other. One in the kingdom of darkness, one in the kingdom of light. One who walked with the serpent, one who walked with the Lord. God was faithful to raise up and set aside a people for himself as he always has throughout human history. Every generation of human history has seen God being faithful to do this. Let's continue. The next person that we see in uh, the Sethite lineage is Methuselah, Enoch's son, Verses 25 to 27 say, When Methuselah had lived 187 years, he fathered Lamech. Methuselah lived after he fathered Lamech 782 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Methuselah were 969 years and he died. So after Enoch, the pattern continues. Death still reigns, as Paul would say in Romans. It prevails. What we can miss about Methuselah is the significance of his age. Now, we have to make a couple assumptions here. If we assume that Moses, as he writes this, is not skipping generations, he may be, he may not be, but let's assume for a moment that he's not skipping generations. The age at which Methuselah dies is very interesting because if you were to add up the ages of Methuselah and Lamech, his son, and Noah, his grandson, 
when their sons are born, that would give you 187 plus 182 plus 500, you get 869. And if you add the 100 years that passed between chapter 5, verse 32, and chapter 7, verse 11, you get a total of 969 years, which is Methuselah's age when he dies, meaning that he died in the year the earth was flooded. He died that year. What heartbreak he must have felt if that is the case, to see how evil, how perverse, how wicked the earth had become by the flood. Methuselah fathered Lamech, lived for 969 years, dead. Dead. Let's continue. Verses 28 to 32. When Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered a son and called his name Noah, saying, Out of the ground that the Lord has, has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. Lamech lived after he fathered Noah 595 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Lamech were 777 years, and he died. After Noah was 500 years old, Noah fathered Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Death is prevalent in this chapter. It is absolutely everywhere in this chapter. And isn't it strange that the author didn't tell us the number of years that the descendants of Cain would live? He doesn't tell us. He just tells us that they lived. Isn't it strange that he doesn't tell us that they died? I mean, we, we know that they did, the flood's coming, if nothing else. But the author specifically tells us that these people in chapter 5, the Sethites, as they're called, they called upon the name of the Lord, and that these people still had to see the awful reality of death. One generation after another, after another, came and went. The promise of the woman's offspring was passed down from generation to generation to generation, but I would imagine that it had to become more and more and more difficult to believe as time went by. People had to be wondering, is this actually going to happen? Did did Adam understand what God said correctly? Is this really going to happen ever? And the fact of the matter is it happened when and how God intended it to happen. The name Noah sounds like the Hebrew word for rest. And little did Lamech know that while his direct offspring Noah wouldn't be the one to deliver the people of God into a place of eternal rest, Noah's life would be a story of God's faithfulness, of God's deliverance, of his wrath against sin, and his life would point to the promised offspring who would come through his line. That's the significance of this chapter. The the promise, the seed is being passed along through this line, through the line of Seth. Of the wicked, the book of Hebrews tells us, and to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient. This is why, friends, this is why we take obedience to the Lord so seriously. We must. It isn't optional because life is short. 
and eternity is long. Obedience to God isn't optional. And yet, Hebrews goes on to tell us, so then there remains a Sabbath rest for who? For the people of God. For the people of God. Jesus would be the one who would rise from the cursed ground. He would be crucified bearing the wrath of the Roman Empire, yes, but more importantly, he would bear the wrath of God against the sins of his people. He took the sins of his people upon himself. And in exchange, he imputed his perfect, unblemished righteousness to all who would place saving faith in him in order that they would stand flawless, flawless before the throne of God. And on the third day after his death, Jesus would rise from the ground which God had cursed to prove that the work of redemption was both complete and sufficient. These people that we've seen in chapter 5 were saved by their faith in the woman's seed. Christ. And we're saved the same way. God has always been pleased by only one thing. And that is faith. Faith in Christ Jesus. These people knew that the day was coming when God himself would stand upon the earth and judge the sins of the world, redeeming all of fallen creation. These people did not make their faith a private matter. They proclaimed their faith in God boldly. They passed it on to their children and to their children's children. And they would strive for holiness, knowing that the day was coming when God was going to stand on the face of the earth and that he was going to judge sin. We still await that day. It could be tomorrow. It could be this afternoon. These people in chapter 5 show us that it's possible to live as a godly people with a godly heritage when the wicked are prospering and thriving and they're happy as a clam. Regardless of how engulfed our nation and our culture becomes in sin and wickedness, we have the promise of Christ's return. We have the promise that God himself will one day stand on the face of the earth. And that should motivate us, by the way, toward godliness and joyful obedience unto God. Perhaps we'll be the generation that doesn't have to taste or experience death. But here's the question. What if that's tomorrow? What if that's tomorrow? What if it's today? Are you ready? Are you ready? Do you know that he would welcome you into this rest for the obedient if he came back tonight? What's preventing you from living your life more fully for the glory of God? Are you living for the things of this world? Are you living for the power? Are you living for the money? Are you living for comfort? Are you living for happiness apart from holiness? 
Do you feel the weight of conviction on your heart as we consider these things? Don't waste another moment living for the meaningless things of this world because they, like you, will just come and go and you won't take them into eternity with you. As the author of Hebrews says today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. God has always set a people apart for himself. Those who have faith in his son. Are you convinced that he has set you apart? Do you desire to be obedient unto God? Do you hate wickedness? Not just wickedness in general, but yours. Do you hate your sin? Do you grieve over your own sin? Do you love Christ? Do you love Christ? Would you forsake everything in the world for him? Everything. Do you believe that Jesus died to redeem for himself a people who would say yes to all these questions and then he would rise from the grave to prove that the work of their redemption was both complete and sufficient? If your answer is yes, then humble yourselves in obedience before the Lord, trusting in Him, and live out your faith with boldness. Do not partition your life so that you've got this one day of the week set aside where you're going to live like you should, and the rest of the week you live like that day doesn't exist. Live all of life in faith, every aspect of your life for the glory of God with boldness, with fearlessness, with confidence in God's promises, knowing what these people knew, that one day God's people will enter into his rest and they will receive their reward for their faithfulness. So friends, do not Waste your life living for things that are meaningless. If you are not living your life for something that matters, friends, you are wasting your life. And ultimately, only the glory of God matters. You're alive today. If you have a heartbeat and you haven't turned to God yet, you still have hope. But don't wait. Don't wait, because tomorrow is not guaranteed. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for this text that, while difficult, gives us some very important perspective on the brevity of life, on how quickly it comes and goes for the reminder that death is certain unless you intervene. And we know that for one generation someday, they will be the exception. But we pray, Lord, that you would grant us repentance, that you would grant us greater faith, 
to live every aspect of life for you while there is still time, while we still have a heartbeat. Father, teach us to live with an eternal perspective, not for the things of this life that just come and go and that we can't take with us, but teach us, Lord, what it, what it really means to live for your glory. And Father, give us strength along the journey. Give us strength because this is a journey that we cannot make on our own strength. We must look to you. We must trust in you and depend on you to strengthen us, to give us endurance and encouragement along the journey. So Father, thank you for the journey. Teach us to live with gratitude toward the journey, for the journey, even for the pains and the hardships and the trials, Lord, knowing that you are causing all things to work together for the good of your people. And you are setting aside for yourself a people, even in this generation. Only by your grace, Father, can we be a part of that people. And so we ask, Lord, for greater faith, for greater obedience in your word. In Christ's name. This message has been brought to you by BibleStudyPodcast.org. We are a listener-supported ministry. If this is your first time listening to us, we thank you so much for joining us and we ask nothing further from you. But if this is a ministry that you rely on for regular spiritual teaching, we do depend on your financial support to keep us going and growing. If you'd like to make a donation to BibleStudyPodcast.org to keep us going and reaching thousands of people around the world, you can go to our website, BibleStudyPodcasts.org, and you can make a donation on the right-hand side by clicking on the support box. Again, we do rely on your support, and we thank you so much for your financial participation in this ministry, which enables us to continue in our mission of teaching timeless truths in these truthless times. God bless you. Thank you so much for listening today and keep growing closer to Jesus. Take me deeper.